Hey mamas, have you ever looked at the back of your prenatal vitamin and wondered if you were truly getting everything you need? I know I didn't when I was pregnant. Well today, I want to share with you the number one prenatal I suggest to all my doula clients, friends, family, and you, women of strength. It's by a company called Needed. I honestly don't think I was the only one that didn't really understand just how important certain nutrients were for myself or my growing baby. And that is why I love Needed. They have gone above and beyond to create solid products, not only that have the key nutrients, but will also have the optimal amount. Don't be overwhelmed picking a prenatal. Check out all of Needed's products, including their prenatals, pre-probiotics, immune support, and more at thisisneeded.com. Enjoy 20% off by using code VBAC20. Hello, hello, you guys. It's November. How are we at the end of 2023? It is crazy how fast this year has gone. We have a special guest today. It's Dr. Nathan S. Fox, and he is so amazing to come on today and talk to us about a couple topics that I don't know if we've actually ever talked about on the podcast. We're going to be talking about scar thickness. We're going to talk about third trimester ultrasounds. We're going to be talking about a little bit about COVID and is it really best to induce at 39 weeks if we've had COVID? What does it mean with our placenta? We know we've been hearing it out there where our placentas are not doing well. So you guys, get ready, buckle up. It's going to be great. I want to tell you a little bit about Nathan Fox. So first, he is a board certified OB and gynecologist, and he is um, also certified in MFM, which is maternal fetal medicine. So in his clinic, he sees a lot of higher risks and unique situations. He did his residency at Mount Sinai. He has an amazing podcast that really dials in on helping people know the evidence and then also understand the evidence in English. Because if you are like me, you, you'll know it is kind of hard to break down some of these studies sometimes. And it's hard to understand what the evidence is even saying and then how to apply it. He has this podcast and it is helpful women are a helpful woman. And we are going to make sure that it is linked. You guys, he has so many incredible guests on there talking about a wide range of things. It's not VBAC specific, but it definitely has a wide range of topics and things that you're probably going to love. So definitely check that out. We'll have it in the show notes. Dr. Fox, seriously, so grateful for you today. Can't wait to have you on. We'll be right back. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. All right. And I need to pull up those questions really fast. There's a lot. So literally, we do not have to get to all of them. <laughs> all right. I'll come back if you want. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I'll have to do a part two. You are so sweet to take the time out of your busy life, I'm sure. This is, we are mission aligned, as they say in the fancy world. We are, right. you know, it's about getting good education, good information out to people so they don't have to hear crazy stuff on the World Wide Web and get terrified. Right. I mean, that's why we started this podcast even, just to share 
stories of people yeah. who are having VBACs so people can hear and learn through those VBACs and then yeah. also know, okay, it is an option. It's possible. Yeah. So I have a question. You said before we started recording that you have two VBAC babies. Yeah. So how was that journey as an OB and MFM? Like, was that, (laughs) was your wife getting information that you're like, wait, that's not true. Or were you like, actually, like, we need to think about this. You know, like, how was that journey as Mm -hmm. someone in the field? So full disclosure, I was getting into the field. So I have four kids. My first two, my first two are twins and they were born when I was a medical student. Okay. So I knew very little, um, mm-hmm. I guess more than nothing, but closer to nothing than, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> than where I am now. And they were born by C-section. Um, both of them were breached. Thank God they both did great. All was well. Mm-hmm. When my next one was born, my wife, my wife was pregnant when I was a second to third year resident in OBGYN, meaning most of her pregnancy, I was a second year. And then she was born like a month after I became a third, not even, she was born July 17th. So 16 days after starting my third year. Um, So I knew a little bit more then. Uh, That was my first or our first VBAC. And then my fourth was born when I was an MFM fellow. I like to say I've had kids in all of my points in training. Yeah. Um, So you know, honestly, we didn't think much about VBAC in terms of like being this grand decision and conversation. I would say mostly because the OB my wife was seeing was on board with it and didn't make yeah. it didn't make it into a bi- a big deal, so to speak. And she was delivering at a hospital at Mount Sinai where I trained and where I now practice, where VBAC mm-hmm. is commonly done. So it wasn't like you know, there was a conversation about it. It wasn't like right. we were blind to it, but it was it was part of the normal culture mm-hmm. uh, in that house on the labor floor. So we didn't think much about it. And I don't, I mean, my wife said, why would I want to repeat C-section if I could try to <laughs> eventually? And, and that was, and it worked out fine, thank God, yeah. for both of them. So uh, my third one was actually also a forceps. We're like a textbook of obstetrics, my wife. So wow. yeah, um, but yeah, so it was, it wasn't, it wasn't dramatic. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, I love hearing that though. You're like, it was just a thing. Like it wasn't, didn't have to be a big deal. It was just, she was going in and wanted to have a baby and didn't want to have yeah, another C-section. I mean, again, I think it's, it's, it is something that should be discussed. People should understand mm-hmm. and not everyone even understands that it is a thing. Mm-hmm. Meaning people don't even realize why it would, what why it would not. Is. Like there is risk. Yeah. But ultimately, if it's an option, the risk of a VBAC, again, in, in the right person, is not markedly higher than the risk of a C-section. And so it's a conversation, like which risk would you prefer, you know, you prefer a risk or which risk would you least prefer? Yeah. You know, you do the other yeah. one. So, yeah. And so that was, the conversation was very straightforward. And they, you know, would you want a repeat section? Do you want a VBAC? She's like, I want a VBAC. And okay, fine. So that's what was done. But it wasn't like, you know, she didn't have to like meet with an attorney to like go over, you know, like everything and sign away her life or anything like that. That sometimes right. happens. Yeah. Oh, I love hearing that. Well, I am so excited that you're here with us today. I know that we have so many things, so many questions to dive into, and they're kind of all over the place. Um, okay. So I think that kind of the first one, I think a lot of our community members 
I mean, so we have a Facebook community on, um, on Facebook, a forum, and one of the like most common posts in there is looking for a provider that's supportive because they were with the provider and then they found out that supportive, that provider that was seeming supportive is not supportive anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all seems to kind of focus around things with evidence-based information and they're getting all the different things. And so one of the questions is, you know, why is it so hard to find the evidence-based information on VBAC, maybe VBAC after multiple cesarean, uterine rupture? Because we have we have some providers that are saying you have a 60% chance of uterine rupture. And then some that are like, you have a 0.4 to 1% chance. And, and mm-hmm. if you look at, those are very dramatic mm-hmm. numbers, right? And, the, you know, the range of answers are just so wide. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just wondering, like, why do you think it's so hard and where can we find this information? Like, where would you suggest our listeners go? And let's talk about your podcast being one of those places because you, <laughs> it's, it's not just VBAC specific. Your podcast isn't VBAC specific, but mm-hmm. it's very, very good in a whole wide range. But yeah, can we talk about where to find evidence-based information about birth in general, but especially VBAC? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really the million dollar question. And I think that both the problem and the solution is essentially that we have access to like all the information that's ever been available ever. It's like, um, there was a great Simpsons, Simpsons thing where Homer Simpson had a shirt that said beer, the cause of, and the solution to all of my problems. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, information is the same way. So like on the one hand, it is unbelievable how much information we have access to and that's a great thing it's not it's not hidden it's not sort of only amongst the elite that they have information everyone can have the same information so that's the good part the bad part is it's very difficult to sift through all of that information and find a what's correct or Mm -hmm. b what's applicable to me right so for example let's say let's say I'm someone who has a prior C-section and I have a friend who's also someone who has a prior C-section, but one of us has a prior low transverse C-section and one of us has a prior classical Mm C-section. How do we know that we have different percent risks, right? So you have to sort of, it's like high level in a certain Mm -hmm. sense. And so sometimes the websites or the podcasts or whatever will spell it out for you and explain it very clearly. But other times you just get a list. You go, okay, the risk is this, 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 and this. And you can't really sort of, I guess, apply it appropriately. So it's one of the things we try to do in our podcast is to be much more user-friendly, like to really explain it and like what would apply to you, what wouldn't, what situations, what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say for people trying to find information, usually it's like a shotgun approach. You Google something and then you find some website and find a list, but you have to be very cautious and make sure that this applies to me and my unique circumstance. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you have a doctor or midwife who can help you with that. You might not. It's possible that you may not. And the other part is sometimes it's hard to interpret data. You know, understanding medical literature is a science. Uh, it's something it, yeah. That we, yeah, we train to do it. We practice it. I, I do weekly journal club with the OBGYN residents. And these are, you know, this is the top of the food chain. These, you know, these are the smartest of the smart. They, they you know, got into great undergraduate. They got into medical school. They got into a residency. These are really, really, really smart people. And it's not always intuitive 
when you read a study or several studies, how to interpret that and apply it, what is, what isn't applicable. It's very difficult stuff. So I would yeah. say don't be dismayed if you are not understanding the information out there or seeing such variation, because that is, you're in the same boat as all of us. It's hard. It um, is. Yeah. It's hard to get the right information out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even when I'm reading through studies or things, it's even hard for me to like, just understand what it's saying and like what the relevance is, you know, of yeah. it and all of it. So, so yeah, it's really hard. And, and I think what you said, like, don't be dismayed, you know, it can be really frustrating when we're yeah. out there and we're like, okay, I have a special scar, you know, or, you know, not a normal low transverse incision. What does this mean for me? What does right. this mean for my future? What does this mean for right now? Like, you know, right. it's really hard. And I think that you kind of nailed it where, you know, one friend can have this, one friend can have this, and you can both have similarities in your risks, but then they also don't apply because there's other things going on in right. addition, right? right. There, so there's there's sort of the facts, right? Like what is, what is the truth? What is the true fact? And there is, there's always some, like brackets around those numbers because mm -hmm. different studies will find different things. Like let's say one study finds 1% and one study finds 4%. Well, is it, is it one? Is it four? Is it the average of the two? Is it range from one to four? Like, and so there's, you know, right. there's some nuances in that, but then there's also trying to sift through the interpretation of the fact, right? So, mm -hmm. and a lot of that is why sometimes you'll see different doctors feel differently about something. So for example, let's say, the risk of uterine rupture is, uh, let's just do very rounded, broad numbers, but mm -hmm. don't hold me to this. Let's say the risk of uterine rupture is 1%, right? Mm -hmm. And if you've had two C-sections, let's say it's 2%, right? Let's say those are the true numbers, and you can argue about those. Those are the numbers. I can describe those very differently. I could say to somebody, all right, you've had one C-section, your risk of rupture is 1%, you've had two it's a little bit higher. You need to know that it's now 2%. Maybe your chance of a successful VBAC is a little bit lower. Okay. I could say it that way, or I can say, mm -hmm. whoa, your risk of uterine rupture where the baby could die is doubled. Right? Yeah. And that sounds, that, that like just gave me the chills. Right. And that's the same number. I've said the same thing in two very different ways. And one person hears it and says, it doesn't sound like a big deal. My doctor said it's fine. Another person said, hey, my doctor said my baby's going to die. Doubled and, so, and die. Yeah. And, those, and again, it, it's understandable because the doctors, the midwives, people are pregnant. We're all human. And humans are complicated beings. We have emotions. We have fears. We have experiences. We have anxieties. We have all these things that come into our heads. And it colors how we view risk and how we describe it to other people. Mm -hmm. And so I would say another sort of lesson is when you're getting information to try to differentiate the numbers, like the sort of the hard facts from the interpretation of the number or the feeling about the number. And so that's why you always have to be very cautious when someone says increased or they say higher or they say double, like that's a relative risk, right? The risk of something is increased. Well, by how much, right? Is it increased a lot? Is it increased a little? Or if that number was very, very low, is it still very, very low, but a little bit higher? Like if 
like I always give people an example, you know, if I walk across the street, there's a certain chance that a piano is going to fall on my head, right? Mm -hmm. That someone moving a piano is going to fall on my head. And if I look up every time I cross the street, I'm going to lower that risk. But it doesn't matter because the mm -hmm. risk is so low to begin with, it doesn't have any practical implication to me. And so it's sort of the same thing. You can talk about something increasing or decreasing your risk, but if the risk is still very, very low either way, it may not matter to the person practically. And so trying to get that from a provider is sometimes difficult because mm -hmm. they may not know themselves the actual numbers. They may just know increased or doubled or this, or they may be so colored by it that they have a hard time talking about it just as numbers or vice versa. They may just be giving you hard numbers and you want to know how they feel about it and they're not giving it to you. So yeah. it is hard, but that's sort of one thing to try to think about or differentiate. Hey, yeah, I love that. I love that. I want to take a quick moment to hear about our partner, Needed, the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners. Needed was founded by two incredible mamas who were navigating their fertility journey. They were shocked to realize that 97% of women take prenatal vitamins, yet 95% of us are nutrient deficient. Is that not eye-opening or what? Getting the right prenatal vitamin is super important. So how do we know which one's best? While most perinatal supplements include the bare minimum, of the nutrients women and babies need, Needed has all of your needs covered from your prenatal vitamin to pregnancy-specific pre- and probiotic, immune lactation and nausea support, as well as supplements that help us with our protein needs, balancing our blood sugar, and postpartum healing. Needed's complete plan delivers unparalleled nourishment for every phase, whether you're thinking of conceiving, pregnant, postpartum, or deeper into your mommy years like me, these supplements are amazing. I take the collagen protein every single day and absolutely love it. Learn more about Needed's complete line of perinatal and women's health supplements at thisisneeded.com. Use code VBAC20 for 20% off. That is VBAC20 at thisisneeded.com. Okay, this can be a very political topic. Oh, all right. <laughs> And you're not going to mention Trump, are you? We're going to talk no, about Trump? Oh, no, okay. let's not talk about Trump. <laughs> everyone in New York, everyone talks about Trump. We I like bet. Him, we hate him, we hate him, we like him. It's all, that's all we talk about. It's like I bet. I bet. I bet in New York it's really hot. Oh, and, and maybe in New York this is even a hot topic because of everything. But we're going to talk a little bit about COVID-19. Oh, okay. um, so we have a lot of moms that have had babies during COVID-19. It was a really hard time for everyone involved, right? Giving yeah. birth as a provider, a nurse, just everybody in life, this whole world of ours. It was unpleasant. It was. <laughs> and that's putting it nicely, I think, in a lot of ways. Like I, it was I just- I still have scars on my face from my N95 mask wearing for like six straight months, but yeah. I, be <laughs> I bet it is. So it was a very traumatic time. And yeah. um, so we were interested to see if you felt like COVID-19 had an impact on the C-section rate. And if you like saw more inductions happening and things like that. But right now we have a lot of our- our moms being told that if even today, if they have had COVID-19 during their pregnancy from the time of conception to the end, that they have to give birth by 39 weeks. So I wanted by to 39 weeks or after by, by 39 weeks. And oh, wow. what they're being told oh. is that their placentas mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. will just crap out. They're just mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it it can it can be really hard in the VBAC community when mm-hmm. they're being told this. And then we may have a provider who doesn't want to induce. Because yeah. we have providers yeah. all over the world that are yes, not sir. comfortable with inducing. Yeah. And so we've got VBAC moms that are like, I want to have a VBAC. Yeah. Had COVID when I was 20 weeks. I'm yeah. fine. All is well. But now yeah. I have to have a baby at 39 weeks. And here I am yeah. and my body's not doing it. Yeah. So there's a lot there to unpack. Um, yeah. <laughs> so no, it's okay. We're, we're you're, you're throwing you're throwing fastballs at me. I like it. You're throwing heat. It's, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm ready. I knew I, I knew it was coming. So whether COVID increases the risk of things like the placenta crapping out, so to speak, is itself a controversial question. So the data on that is mixed. It seems that there are some people who COVID has a negative impact on their placenta Mm -hmm. that manifest as the baby not growing well. It can manifest maybe that get them getting preeclampsia. Worst case scenarios, it can manifest as a stillbirth. However, you wouldn't expect the stillbirth to happen out of nowhere. You would expect there to be like multiple things leading up to it, like the baby not growing well, the blood pressure going up, the fluid dropping, you know, a lot of right. things, like a sudden stillbirth. Warning signs. Right. Now that is different from someone who's acutely ill with COVID, someone in the midst of a very severe COVID infection that is very dangerous to the mother and potentially the baby. But we're talking about someone who got COVID and recovered or just found out they had COVID, you know, and and Mm -hmm. they were fine, like that type of thing. Yeah. So A, the data is sort of questionable and B, what to do about it is also questionable. So, you know, we have people, let's say if you're over the age of 35, you Mm -hmm. also have a slightly increased risk of all those things. Or if you had IVF, or if you have, there's a whole list of things that put you at increased risk of your placenta crapping out, so to speak. And what to do about it is also similarly more of a um like a philosophical question more than a more than like a hard data question so whether someone has to be delivered i wouldn't say before but usually at 39 weeks because they had covid i am not doing that personally in my practice we do sort of follow up and do an ultrasound make sure the baby's growing well but if someone had covid at 20 weeks and they're otherwise doing well later in pregnancy we don't say they need to be induced at a certain point. So that's not something I'm doing. I'm not aware of anybody, like any professional societies like ACOG, like American College of Mm OBGYN, Society for Maternal Field Medicine, or anybody who's actually recommending that or advocating that. Yeah. Uh, But again, some individual doctors are very uncomfortable with any risk. But I think the other part of this that is really coloring a lot of these discussions nowadays is there was a study called the ARRIVE trial that got published Mm -hmm. a few years ago. And it's a very, very good study. And the study was essentially designed to test if inducing everybody, these are low risk, first time pregnant first moms, time mamas, lowest, yeah. lowest risk, risk, whether inducing everybody at 39 weeks improved outcomes or worsened outcomes. The, the outcome they really looked at was death of the baby, right? And it did not have any impact um, on that uh, in either direction. What they also learned was that the rate of C-section did not go up by getting induced. That was like the biggest sort of like, I I don't want to say surprise because medically we actually thought that would happen, but sort of in the community, that was a big surprise because everyone sort of was always told if you get induced, you have an increased risk of C-section. So the study did not show that. 
And it showed you have a slightly lower risk of getting high blood pressure, which makes sense because the longer you're pregnant, the more it goes. But so the way I look at that study is if I want to induce someone or if a patient wants to be induced at 39 mm -hmm. weeks, there's an upside, there's a downside, but the downside does not include an increased risk of C-section, right? Mm -hmm. The downside could be the longer labor, it takes more time, it's not as pleasant. Okay, fine. That's how I look at the study. Some people took the study and interpreted it to say, since there's no risk of C-section, you should induce everyone at 39 weeks. Like that's mm -hmm. the optimal thing to do. And, and it's happening it, a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely people interpret that. I don't think it's an unreasonable interpretation because you can say, listen, if I'm delivering you, there is no chance for a stillbirth in the next two weeks. Like I get it. But I don't think it's the only interpretation. And it's also a very impractical interpretation because, you know, if you induce someone, the amount of time they're in the labor room is on average 18 hours, 12 to 24 hours. They're in the labor room. Mm -hmm. They come in and labor on their own. The average is, let's say, six to 12 hours, something like mm -hmm. that. So if you induce everyone, you need twice as many labor rooms. And so I don't think every hospital in the country plans to double their labor floor Mm -mm. And so now you just can't do it practically. But this is a very, very long answer to your question. I think that what's happened is you have a new risk factor, which is COVID, mm -hmm. which is very prevalent. I mean, everybody got COVID basically in some point. Mm -hmm. And you have a new fact that inducing the 39 weeks does not seem to increase the risk of C-section. So there are some people concluding, well, I have a risk factor and inducing the 39 weeks isn't quote unquote bad. So I'm going to affirmatively recommend it on everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's tough. I don't do that. I, I don't usually recommend it. I, if they want it, I think it's an option. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's, again, it's hard to know when you sign up with somebody who's providing prenatal care, what their philosophy is. And yeah. these are questions you probably want to ask very, very early on in prenatal care. Things like, you know, again, the things that really matter, right? So for mm -hmm. example, if, if, it, if it very much matters to you not to have an episiotomy, you should ask very early, do you perform routine episiotomies? Now, mm -hmm. most OBs nowadays will say no, right? But if your OB says, yeah, I do them in everybody and you don't want that, get the hell out, switch. Yeah, you know? yeah it's probably or, not your provider. Yeah, I mean, again, and if it doesn't matter to you, then don't ask that question. Or for example, do you, you know, like VBAC, let's talk specifically about VBAC. Very early on, just ask, what are your thoughts on VBAP? People don't, they're not going to lie to you. They're like, they're going to tell you, right? Doctors are usually going to give you, and if they don't tell you, you're going to be able to tell right away. If they say, VBAP's awesome. I love it. I love when I can help someone with the VBAP. It's so satisfying. It's rewarding. There's some risks and we'll talk about them, but basically I think it's great versus they tell you, I don't do them. Okay. Or they say, yeah, I'm okay with it, but you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. eh much and then okay they're telling you they're telling you that that it's okay but they're clearly not they're not gung-ho about it yeah, yeah or or the other question is if they're gung-ho you can say okay what's the culture in your hospital like so if they say listen mm. i'm gung-ho but the labor nurses think it's a stupid thing to do and the hospital is trying to get us to stop doing it because they had a lawsuit in this you may have a great doctor or midwife, but they may be practicing in a place that isn't supportive. And that's also an issue. Yeah. And again, I don't, I guess there's some people who might lie to you because they quote unquote want your business, but most OBs aren't like that because if they're, if they don't want to do it, 
it's because A, they think it's wrong. B, they sort of think it's okay, but they don't want to get into a lawsuit, let's say. Or C, they're just afraid. They just, they're not, but so why would they want to hide that from you? It's the opposite. They would want to tell you up yeah. front. So I think if you ask very blunt questions very early, they will tell you. Yeah. And if you're the provider who's uncomfortable, you don't want to be with them for your VBAC. It's not mm-hmm. a good match. Right. We talk to our community members about that a lot. Like, don't just say like, do you support VBAC? Yes or no. It's how do you feel about VBAC? And I love the question of what is the culture yeah. in the, you know, in your labor and delivery unit? Like, I love, love yeah. that. And usually this is a, a good time when open-ended questions are best. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Let them talk, let them, let them cook. And they will yes. just tell you, they will tell you their thoughts and their, you usually can read it very quickly. Their body language. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of circling back to this, this whole induction thing at by mm-hmm. 39 weeks, like mm-hmm. you, you're not, you're saying like, there's not really any organization that's hardcore supporting this evidence of as someone, a person that has had COVID has to have a baby by 39 weeks. I, I, I haven't heard that out of anybody. And okay. usually, even if someone said that, it usually wouldn't be by 39 weeks because it, we're very, yeah. Um, it, it's a big thing not to induce people before 39 weeks unless there's a very good reason. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. They're wanting to induce at 39 weeks. Right. So I think they mean at at 39 weeks, like as soon as possible after. But again, I don't know anyone who's recommending that specifically because of COVID. COVID. Um, Again, I'm sure there's someone who might, but I don't know. And again, personally, what I would do is if they have COVID, again, I would just check that everything's okay with the placenta later in pregnancy. Usually it's just an ultrasound. And if everything's fine, I wouldn't, I would say fine. Do anything. yeah, and if there's a concern, then it's based on the concern, you know. Yeah. I, there are people who I recommend to get induced at 39 weeks, but mm-hmm. there's a reason, and we'll tell you what the reason is, and COVID has not been one of them. Okay, that's so good to know. So we try to kind of dabbled into the arrive trial. But can we talk about 40 the 40 week mark, right? Because we have seen mm-hmm. ever since arrived came out that things have kind of moved up. It's like 40 weeks is really 39 weeks, 41 weeks is you know, 40 weeks, like we see 39. Yes. Or it 39 really is the new 40 39 is the new 40. Yes. <laughs> it seems to kind of be happening. Um, not, not everywhere, yeah. but it, it's happening. Can we talk about uterine rupture after 40 weeks, like mm-hmm. our original 40 week? Mm-hmm. Here we are, right. you know, you know, we know ACOG suggests or uh, supports going past it, but can we talk about the risks of uterine rupture further into pregnancy that, right. you know, the further into pregnancy that we go? Yeah. So, well, there's two risks that part of the reason for the, the shift going earlier is not because of the risk of uterine rupture. It's more the risk of stillbirth as mm-hmm. you get more mm-hmm. pregnant, sort of, if you look at just for the baby, forget about, I don't want to say this and be recorded, but you know, forget about the mom. Like, yeah. Well, it's not this, think about this mom question right was to forget about the mom, it, yeah. mother first, baby second. But for this question, you're just looking at the health of the baby and you look at timing of delivery. Generally things get better and better for the baby as you get closer to 39 weeks, meaning a baby born at 37 weeks does better than a baby at 36 weeks. A baby at 38 Mm -hmm. does better than 37. And at 39 generally does better than 38. Once you hit 39, it plateaus and then starts to diminish, meaning the optimal quote unquote time for a baby is somewhere around 39 to 40 weeks. And then as you get past, it goes down 
part of that is because of stuff after birth, like meconium or this. And some of it is because mm -hmm. some of these babies, unfortunately, will have stillbirths inside. Again, that's very, very rare. And it's, I'm not saying it's to scare anybody, but it happens. And mm -hmm. so as you go past your due date further and further, the risk seems to go up. So with that said, is it worth inducing because of that? And generally, for the a typical low-risk, healthy person, the difference between 39 to 41 weeks is very minuscule in terms of the baby. And so we don't, at least I don't typically tell people, again, with low risk, that you need to be induced at 39 or 40. And generally, I tell them from 39 to 41 seems to be pretty similar for the baby or mm -hmm. you know, very, very slight differences. And I leave it to people's preferences. If there's someone who wants to get the hell out of pregnancy as soon as possible because they're uncomfortable, they got family coming in town, whatever it might be, fine. Mm -hmm. Or they're, they're worried about stillbirth, fine, closer to 39 weeks versus if mm -hmm. there's someone who really wants to go into labor on their own, then you wait towards 41 weeks. After 41 weeks, the risk really starts going up. And so it is, there are people who I will, you know, let, I don't really let them, but I, you know, sort of, I'm okay with them staying pregnant past 41 weeks. Mm -hmm. But generally when you get to 42, pretty much everyone recommends inducing at 42 weeks and many yeah. at 41 weeks. So that's all because of the baby. Yeah. Now in that conversation for some of the VBAC, there's a second risk on top of that, which is, okay, that's for the baby, but what about for uterine rupture? And so it doesn't seem to have a huge difference between 39, 40, or 41 weeks for uterine rupture, it's slightly higher if the baby's bigger, and it's slightly higher if you induce. And mm -hmm. so you're sort of balancing, is it better to induce and have a slightly smaller baby, or is it better to wait and go into labor on your own and have a slightly bigger baby? Also knowing that if you don't go into labor on your own, now I'm inducing with a slightly bigger baby. Like, so that's part of the risk is you may end up in a situation that's worse. And that again is there isn't a right or a wrong answer. It's a mm -hmm. conversation for people whose doctors or midwives won't induce them, right? Out of principle, out of practice, the hospital won't allow it. They won't allow it. Then yeah, yeah. you wait as long as they'll let you until it's sort of unsafe for the baby and hope to go into labor on your own. Uh, in our practice, we do induce people with a prior C-section. It's a conversation. There's a risk. Da, da, da. Mm -hmm. and we have to decide, is it better to do it earlier? Is it better to do it later? And that's, again, a conversation based on taking all of the risks. But, yeah, you know, the, the risk of inducing probably ballpark adds another 1%. So if your risk was 1%, it probably makes it 2%. Again, I can tell you that makes mm -hmm. it double or I can tell you it's 2%. But, you know, it right. increases it a little bit. Not so much if they've had prior vaginal deliveries. That's more so if they've never had a vaginal delivery. And the risk of waiting an extra two weeks, the risk to the is also probably less than 1%. So these are very small numbers. And it's sort of, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to say pick your poison because neither is really poison. But, you know, whichever one is sort of more, I don't know, palatable, that's the one you'll do. Um, mm -hmm. But again, you have to have someone who both options are on the table. And for some people, the option to be induced is not on the table. Yeah. So for someone who's feeling really worried about uterine rupture, going to 41 weeks and maybe not getting induced or going into, you know, trying to go into spontaneous labor mm -hmm. at 41 weeks, we shouldn't be feeling that we are in our, you know, we've passed that 41 weeks. And so our chance of uterine rupture just skyrocketed. It, no, I don't, I don't it's think it's pretty minuscule within it, this. Yeah. The same. chance of uterine rupture doesn't really go up markedly the more pregnant you get. 
if you get induced, it goes up a little bit and or you have risk to baby. the baby um, yeah. of waiting. But it's not so much, the, the rupture risk is not markedly changed by your gestational age of delivery. Maybe there's slight differences, but nothing crazy. Hey, that's good to know for the audience because that's, that's, they ask that a lot. Yeah. Um, so I, I, a lot of people also would prefer, you know, some of the doctors wanted, they call like quote unquote a controlled setting. It also depends what your situation mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Again, I, I, I live, I practice in an area where people usually can get to the hospital very quickly if they go into labor. But mm-hmm. if I'm practicing somewhere where someone has a two, I actually just had someone who she actually lives two hours away. She comes mm-hmm. to our practice because we're a high risk practice and she doesn't want to go somewhere local. Fine. And she is someone with two prior C-sections and this. And so that does play into this because she's not someone who, when she goes into labor, is going to be monitored right away. She's two mm-hmm. to three She's hours. far away. Right. Yeah. So th- that is sometimes a factor in these discussions. Again, what do you do about it depends, but that may be a reason someone might prefer to have you induced rather than going into labor on your own if they're worried about time to get to the hospital or something like yeah. that. Uh, again, usually not relevant for me, but sometimes. More of a controlled setting. Yeah. So you you have a lot of knowledge in imaging and testings and all of these things. So we're going to kind of like take a little bit of a turn from like due dates and all of those things and talk about like testings that happen during pregnancy. Cause this is kind of something that comes up a lot and we've got like early middle late testings, you know, that are happening and a couple that are happening that in the early stage is genetic testing. Mm-hmm. It's becoming a lot more popular. And a lot of people are wondering, like, does this does this impact my chance of VBAC at all? Does this increase my mm-hmm. chance of cesarean? Can genetic testing, mm-hmm. you know, impact this mode, the mode of delivery of birth? Right. So is there anything that you feel that our community should know about that right. early on it, test originally? It shouldn't. The- it really shouldn't impact anything about mode of birth. You know, for genetic testing, fortunately, if you get to the point where you're 10, 11, 12, 13 weeks when this is done, whether it's a blood test or an ultrasound, these are screening tests or an invasive test like a CVS or amnio. Again, fortunately, high 90s percent of people have a baby with no genetic issues whatsoever. Thank God we are, mm-hmm. you know, we're very fortunate. Um, Mm -hmm. for the few people who unfortunately have a baby with one of those genetic conditions, the genetic screening and testing is, is information. It's just to find out before birth. Now, obviously some people get results and choose to terminate pregnancies. Other people Mm -hmm. get the results and choose not to terminate pregnancies. And it's just information they want before birth. That's also another political discussion, obviously, but ultimately at the end of the day, none of that really impacts the mode of delivery occasionally it impacts the timing of delivery sometimes certain genetic things you you know if there's associated anomalies you you know occasionally Mm -hmm. um so i don't really think it impacts it would be a very rare case where the results of a genetic testing would then somehow preclude someone from a have to have a c-section yeah i mean again and and no if it precluded someone from a v-back it would probably also preclude someone on their first baby from having a vaginal delivery like there are some abnormalities in babies where they're better off being born by Mm c-section but that has nothing to do with v-back it's just you know that's just the case those are also pretty unusual it's most even babies with certain abnormalities usually can be born vaginally safely 
uh, but occasionally there's some ones that they shouldn't. Um, mm-hmm. But again, not specific to VBAC, but that's just anybody. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I think people should, if they want to, if they want to know more about their baby's genetics, they should do it. They should feel comfortable. Uh, and if for some reason they don't want to know, fine, that's okay too. But it, it should not impact the VBAC. Yeah. Hey, that you is know, good. We did, like this is genetics is like the most complicated part of all of prenatal care for patients, for doctors, for everybody. We have like six hours of podcasting on this, and it's just like scratching the surface because it's it's complex. It is growing. It's expanding. So yeah, try to get educated on that. But short answer, it should not affect VBAC. Yeah, that's a, it's seeming like it's growing huge. It's a huge. popular con, uh, you know, yeah, we topic. Know, yeah, we know nothing more about labor than we did a hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah, but we know, oh, we know, know a lot about genetic <laughs> testing. <laughs> yeah, we know a bajillion times more about genetics than we did a hundred years ago. Well, yeah. and we'll make sure if uh, anyone is wanting to find out more about genetic testing, mm-hmm. we'll make sure to link your podcast in it and right. or one of the episodes and then they can filter yeah. through. Um, They're free. So- Okay, so another one, and this is usually done through ultrasound, is the scar thickness. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? What is the evidence? What is? What do you have to say uh, yeah, about the yeah. scar thickness? Because yeah. we have some uh, providers that are like, "Oh, it's too thin. Yeah. You cannot, will not, yeah. absolutely will yeah. rupture." I mean, like yeah. making very. I hear you. I hear you. Like that. I, I just did a consultation for someone on this two days ago, well, it's Tuesday, Friday, three days ago, whatever it was, that here's the issue. When you have a C-section, you're essentially cutting open the uterus, taking out the baby, taking out the placenta, then sewing it back together. If that uterus healed perfectly, like exactly the same as before you cut it open, fine. Then you don't have a risk of uterine rupture any more than anyone else in the world is having a baby. But when you cut things open and sew them back together, we know that the integrity of that tissue is always diminished compared to before. That's true in every part of the body. Mm-hmm. So when you're laboring and you're contracting and squeezing and all this stuff, there is the chance that it would open up. And fortunately, we've learned that people who have this low transverse type of incision, while that is true, the risk of it is pretty low, you know, 1% or less. There are times when it is higher, like if you make a different type of incision, fine. So the question is, are there ways to further sort of quantify this risk or to find who, like, who is that 1%? Can we predict who that 1% is, or is it just pure luck? And so someone came up with an idea that, all right, if I look at the area of the scar the where I made the incision and sewed it together, either before pregnancy or during pregnancy, and I measure it, I can measure the thickness of the muscle, right? You're taking a muscle and sewing it back together, mm-hmm. and it's very thick. The implication is that it's stronger, whereas if it's very thin, the implication is that it's weaker. And I would say that's probably true, that the thicker it is, the stronger it is, and the thinner it is, the weaker it is. But the question is, how do you use that practically, right? Is there a cutoff where I could say, okay, if it's this thickness or greater, the risk of rupture is less than 1%, whereas if it's this thickness and thinner, the risk is more than 1%, it's 2%, it's 5%, it's 10%, it's 50%. Right. And the problem is we've never been able to identify a good cutoff, meaning let's say a lot of people use like two or three millimeters. Excuse me, yeah. two or three millimeters, that if it's under that number, 
it's higher risk and it's over that number, it's lower risk. The problem with that is there are enough people whose uteruses rupture despite being over three millimeters. And there are enough people who don't rupture despite being under three millimeters that it doesn't seem to be a practical or useful cutoff. And most of the studies that have looked at for example, there's a study where they said, all right, I'm going to take a thousand women or whatever the number was with a prior C-section. And in half of them, I'm going to measure the thickness and do this sort of like exercise where if it's this thickness, I, I will have them be back. And it's this thickness, I won't have them be back. And in the other 500, I'm not just, I'm not even going to measure. I'm not going to look. And if you look at those two groups, neither one did better. And so mm-hmm. it sort of indicates that this exercise of measuring the thickness and making decision doesn't seem to be fruitful. Now, I'm sure there's somebody on earth who you measure the thickness, you see it's thin, you don't have them be back and you save them a bad outcome. But there's also probably a lot of people who you then said couldn't be back when they would have perfectly fine be back. And so mm-hmm. the short answer is nobody knows. And okay. it's very difficult. There isn't one standard. And that is something that some people use in their practice and some people don't. In our practice, we don't measure we don't formally measure the thickness and make decisions about it. If we see something that looks remarkably unusual, then we have a discussion about it and it depends mm-hmm. on the circumstances, but we don't do that ourselves. There are those that do it, whether they're helping the world or harming the world. I have no idea. Nobody knows. That's the problem. Right. Now there's a different situation where you measure the thickness before pregnancy. That's what I was just going to ask. Right. Like, is there a situation where, okay, we're right. done. We're not even, we're not even pregnant and right. we measure. So, so that is something that is an, is an emerging field of research. So we do that on certain people, like if they've had multiple C-sections and this, but it, it's not often because I want to know if they should be back or not. It's usually if I'm worried about something called a cesarean scar pregnancy where the pregnancy implants there or if they're at risk for uterine rupture, like during pregnancy, and you know, there's different cutoffs used, and you have to have a, a very specific test called the saline sonohistogram, where we squirt water in the uterus and measure the thickness of the scar, and mm. whether what to do about it. You would need surgery to repair that, and then what do those people do in pregnancy? So there is no. This is definitely not standardized, and different people do it differently, ranging from not doing it at all to doing it very religiously. Mm-hmm. And we still don't know what the optimal, what is the optimal, you know, sort of method for this. Um, again, we yeah. don't routinely do this test on everybody who's had a C-section between pregnancies. Uh, we do it on certain people, but it's a lot of it is about planning for the pregnancy more than deciding about the back or not. They, what I would say if they can or cannot. Okay, yeah. that is good to know. And then, yeah. kind of like on the in the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some people talking about adhesions, right? So we get adhesions yeah. after we have C-sections, right? Yeah. And yeah. if we have really dense adhesions and we're having issues, do our mm-hmm. does our risk, and we're seeing this on these ultrasounds, yeah. does our risk mm-hmm. of rupture go up with mm-hmm. adhesions? Right, so because- adhesions are generally scar tissue in your belly. Mm-hmm. So that's either between the uterus and other parts of your belly or between various layers of your abdominal wall Mm-hmm. Uh, so number one, we don't think they have any impact on risk of rupture. Um, they make a C-section harder, harder. on the surgeon, um, yeah. but we don't usually see them on ultrasound. That's actually not correct. Okay. It's, it's very- See, it's people very, are seeing that they're told yeah, that. 
it's because it because adhesion just means two things are stuck together. It's very yeah, hard it's to just tell. scar tissue, right? Yeah. Like yeah, it's hard to tell if two things are stuck together on ultrasound versus just sitting next to each other on ultrasound. You know, mm-hmm. if I show you a picture of my hands together, you have no way of knowing if they're super glued together or not until you try to peel them apart. Right. And so it's the same thing. So on ultrasound, we rarely sometimes you know, you'll see like the uterus is tilted in a really weird way and you know, it must be scarred or this or that, but that's also pre-pregnancy. During Mm -hmm. pregnancy, the uterus grows very, very large and you can't typically tell who is and is not going to have scar tissue. Um, And it does not usually impact VBAC. And also you rarely have a lot of scar tissue after only one or two C-sections. Usually it's if you've had three or four or five and we're not mm-hmm. doing VBACs on people who've had three, four, five C-sections and no vaginal births. And so it doesn't really come into play practically. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. Cause yeah, people are told like in those scar thickened yeah. visits that they're like, oh, and you have a lot of adhesions. So your chance of ruptures. Yeah. Increase. I don't, I don't, I, listen, I, I, I don't have the skill myself to recognize adhesions on ultrasound. I'm not sure if anyone does. I'm not sure if they're telling people that because maybe. I guess the only way you know is let's say someone's had two prior C-sections and they want to VBAC and the person who did their first C-section, sorry, the person who did their second C-section saw a lot of scar tissue from their first C-section. Then they would say, all right, listen, I did your second C-section. It's a mess in there. You know, you're not a good candidate to VBAC because if you need an emergency C-section in labor, it'd be hard, a long time to do it. And that is a very reasonable discussion to say, listen, You know, part of doing a VBAC is having the capability of doing an emergency C-section if it goes wrong. If mm-hmm. the VBAC, you know, something bad happens or there's a concern over that. And if you know in advance, I can't do a C-section easily, mm-hmm. then that makes it more difficult. So, for example, that happens someone who's had, we know they have scar tissue. Or let's say someone had multiple surgeries. Let's say they had a, a tummy tuck, which has a lot of scar tissue. Or they've had other, they have Crohn's disease and they had three other surgeries. Or let's say, you know, because of their the size of the person themselves, they're, they're much larger, it's harder to do a C-section quickly. That is a very reasonable concern over mm-hmm. a VBAC to say, listen, if the VBAC goes well, great. But if I have to do a C-section in labor and I have to do it quickly, I can't do it quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's sort of the reason why some hospitals don't have VBACs because they're like, listen, we don't have an anesthesiologist here 24-7. If you need a C-section, I need 30 to 60 minutes to get a team mm-hmm. in place. That may not be safe. And that's one of the reasons like smaller community hospitals don't allow VBACs. It's not because they're mean. It's because they don't have the proper staffing to address an emergency. Now, anybody can have an emergency in labor. And so that's a problem for everyone. But it's more common if you have a prior C-section that you may have to do something emergently. Gotcha. Okay. And then one of the last and the most famous ultrasounds I feel like in our community is the third trimester ultrasound to check baby's size. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our community, we have a lot of people doubting their body's ability to give birth mm-hmm. because they're told their babies are too mm-hmm. large or their pelvis is too small. And yeah. I mean, la di da, we could go on for a long time Geometry. with that, but, or like their fluid is too low. So, so we're getting these third trimester ultrasounds. One, I guess the first question is what is, is it necessary? Mm-hmm. Is it absolutely necessary? Can someone turn it down? Like, is it a bad right. idea to turn it down? And right. two, like if they're told your baby's too large, your fluid's too low, is it possible to like increase our fluid somehow? Mm-hmm. Is it really possible to know exactly how big that baby is? Right. So, 
to answer that question fully, I'm going to need more than the five minutes. We five have minutes left. that we have. So we can, yeah. well, we, I, I can come back. But to, the short answer is whether it's a good idea or not to have that ultrasound is debatable. I think I we per, in our practice, we do it, but we have a higher risk population typically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I'm pretty confident that we, re, we interpret the results appropriately. Oh. Right. So mm-hmm. the issue isn't so much the ultrasound, it's the interpretation of it. Low fluid is a legitimate concern, and that's a concern for the health of the baby because low fluid could indicate a non-functioning placenta, or as we said earlier, your placenta's crapping out. Like that could be mm-hmm. a sign of that. So that's the concern. So that's real. That's legit. Yeah. Same thing if the baby's measuring too small, most of them are fine, but the concern is maybe it means your placenta's crapping out. Mm-hmm. The baby being too big, there's two issues with that. One is we are, especially with big babies, less accurate. Smaller babies, we tend to be more accurate. Big babies, we tend to be very inaccurate. I mean, we may be right that the baby's big, but you know how mm-hmm. big, we're, we're not that precise. And what to do about that? Like you said, mm-hmm. most people having a baby can deliver a big baby and everyone's going to be fine. But yes, there are risks that go up as the baby gets bigger. There's the risk mm-hmm. of an injury to the baby. We there's a risk of yeah. an injury to the mother. And there's a risk of uterine rupture because A, the baby's bigger and B, the labor's likely going to be longer and more difficult, which increases mm-hmm. the risk. Now, whether that should be used as a criteria to sort of prohibit VBAC, again, mm-hmm. is is debatable. There isn't a perfect answer to this. I would be less comfortable managing a VBAC if the estimated weight of the baby is 10 pounds and if we're eight pounds. Now, do I have to be so uncomfortable that I wouldn't allow it? I mean, it depends on the circumstances, obviously. So it is mm-hmm. a legitimate concern that the baby's measuring big, but again, how confident are we? How big? It, that, those are Those are difficult details. Our ability to assess the size of the pelvis is even worse because the pelvis changes in labor also. And so mm-hmm. I don't, you know, it's part of our assessment, but we have the humility to know that we're frequently wrong about that. It's tough. Listen, if someone had a prior C-section yeah. and their story is, I pushed for four hours and the six pound baby didn't come out and they did a C-section. And then in the next pregnancy, I'm estimating a 10 pound baby and the pelvis does not feel so great and the baby's very high. I'm certainly a lot less gung-ho about it than if they said the opposite. I push for four hours and I have a ten, for a 10-pound baby. And then in the next pregnancy, the pelvis feels very roomy and great and the baby's measuring mm-hmm. six pounds. So, and that's legitimate. Now, I could be wrong on either end, but it's that's information that might be helpful to me. But mm-hmm. again, these have to be individualized. There isn't a perfect right. answer to this. I, I wish I wish we could be more scientific and people have tried a lot of different things they used to do routine x-rays and see the size of the pelvis, the size of the baby's head. It didn't help. Uh, the baby's head changes shape in labor and the pelvis changes shape in labor. So it's, it's, we're imprecise, unfortunately, yeah. with this. Yeah. No, I love that you said like, it's all unique, right? We're all individuals. Yeah. We're all different. Yeah. And even from one baby to another, we need to remember that yeah. it's always different. Yeah. Oh, man. Yes. Well, I know that we could dive into so much more. Um, There's so many topics, but I really wanted to just thank you so much for taking the time today. I know you've got quite the schedule and, you know, spending this hour with us and answering these questions. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for doing what you're doing. I think it's great. And um, hopefully, you know, we'll continue getting people better information and making good choices.
Yes. We'll make sure to link everything, your podcast, your website, so people can read more about you. And in New York, people can find you now that, we, you know, <laughs> sometimes it can be like, you have people looking for doctors all the time. So we'll make yeah. sure. So if you're in New York City, our practice, we 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 do VBAC. So come on over. And if we don't come think it's over. a good idea, we'll tell you. But, you know, if it's a good idea, we're on board. And you do VBAC after two C-sections, you said? Uh, we do. I mean, it, de- it depends on the exact circumstances. Uh-huh. Like we don't prohibit it because of two C-sections. Obviously, uh-huh. there's some people in that category who we think it's a better idea than others, but it's not like a hard rule or anything like that. Okay. Good yeah. to know. Hey, well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hey, bye. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share to submit your story. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, the worldwide database for VBAC doulas, and more, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.